the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday, we did that already, Tuesday, the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Aaron Anderson is engineering today's program. James Blend is producer. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Mary T. Letterleitner. She's the author of Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. She's the founder and executive director of Missional Intelligence. She has a Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, an M.A. in Intercultural Studies from Wheaton college. She teaches as an adjunct professor at both institutions. She's a veteran missions leader, a researcher. She served for two decades with the Wycliffe Global Alliance in international leadership roles. She's also the author of Cross-Cultural Partnerships. So I'm looking forward to a conversation about her latest book, Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. And it gives me an opportunity to remind you that coming up uh, the 18th of January, Mission Connection will be coming to the Portland metro area this year at Rolling Hills Church, and we'll be talking about that in the days ahead. But you might want to mark your calendar Friday and Saturday, January 18th and 19th. A great opportunity to really think about how you might be used in fulfilling the Great Commission. First, we want to take a look at some of the developing news stories for the day. Lawmakers continue to honor George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41. President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump paid respects yesterday as the body of the nation's 41st president lies in state at the Capitol Rotunda in Washington until Wednesday. And as the nation mourns former President George Herbert Walker Bush, various members of the mainstream media have sparked outrage by using his death to attack Donald Trump. It seems like Donald Trump should be irrelevant to the death of a former sitting president. Caravan migrants uh, frustrated over the asylum-seeking process began to breach the U.S.-Mexico border on Monday, according to one report. And France is expected to suspend and did the fuel tax hikes that have led to violent protests, according to French media. CIA Director Gina Haspel uh, briefed Senate committee leaders on the investigation on the killing of Saudi activist Jamal Khashoggi. And special counsel Robert Mueller reportedly is uh, close to finishing his investigation as conservative author Jerome Corsi filed a criminal complaint against Mueller's team on Monday. Well, as I mentioned, uh, lawmakers on Monday put aside partisan politics to pay tribute to former President George Bush, who was remembered for his lifelong service to his country, decency and willingness to reach across the aisle. President Trump and First Lady uh, Melania Trump uh, paid their respects to the 41st president of the United States, visiting the late president's flag draped casket in the building's rotunda where Bush will lie in state until tomorrow morning before being transported to the National Cathedral for a private state funeral, which uh, the president is scheduled to attend. At an earlier ceremony, Vice President Mike Pence and other top lawmakers spoke and reflected on Bush's military record and service. President Bush, Pence said, never failed to answer the call to serve his country. And media missteps in the coverage of former President George Bush's death from a derogatory Associated Press tweet 
to the gray lady, including misleading info in the obituary, have fueled new accusations of bias in the media. A shouting match erupted uh, on The View when uh, Joy Behar tried to use Bush's legacy to bash and um, Donald Trump and co-host Megan McCain, who is no Trump fan, attempted to keep the uh, the show focused on Bush 41. And while several uh, publications and media figures used Bush's death to take shots at Trump, even some standard obituaries were panned as slanted and unfair. The AP notably backed off a widely criticized tweet sent shortly after the death of Bush 41 uh, was confirmed. The now deleted message said George Herbert Walker Bush, a patrician New Englander who uh, whose uh, presidency soared with a coalition victory over Iraq and Kuwait, but then plummeted in the throes of a weak economy that led voters to turn him out of office after a single term has died. <laughs> wow. Uh, he was 94. I should mention they also said that. The tweet was immediately slammed, and AP eventually deleted the tweet and admitted the gaffe. I guess they didn't catch on that in our culture you just say nice things about people when they passed away. At least two dozen Central American migrants disillusioned and frustrated with the asylum-seeking process breached the U.S.-Mexico border yesterday just before dusk by scaling a 10-foot metal fence, Reuters reported. Other migrants managed to squeeze through the fence on the beach. Some migrants reportedly tried to escape the capture by the U.S. Border Patrol, but most were caught. It remains unclear how many managed to escape the detention. The migrants are part of the caravan that traveled toward the United States in an effort to enter the U.S., some illegally, others legally, in the hope of applying for asylum, citing issues such as rampant violence in their home countries. And French uh, Prime Minister uh, Macron is expected to announce and did a suspension of the fuel tax hikes that have uh, provoked a protest movement that has grown violent, according to French media. Uh, The minister is expected to uh, uh, increase uh, to rather announce that the planned increase will be suspended for several months. Le Monde and France uh, Info Radio reported Felipe is also expected to announce other measures aimed at easing tensions. And CIA Director Gina Haspel, she briefed leaders of multiple Senate committees on Tuesday about the October killing of Saudi activist and writer Jamal Khashoggi. The source said the briefing included leaders of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Armed Services Committee and Appropriations Committee. Haspel didn't attend a briefing about Khashoggi's death that was given to all senators last week by Defense Secretary James Mattis and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Her absence upset some lawmakers on both sides of the aisle with Senator Lindsey Graham, who was not satisfied with what he heard today, vowing to hold up Congress's agenda for the current lame duck session until he heard from the CIA director, which he did today. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation recently uh, have um, told president's defense lawyers that they are trying to tie up loose ends, suggesting the probe may be nearing an end. Again, speculating. News reports that uh, prosecutors are planning to file memos on former Trump national security advisor Michael Flynn, former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, former Trump personal lawyer Michael Cohen. Meanwhile, author and Mueller target Jerome Corsi filed a criminal an ethics complaint against Mueller's team accusing investigators of trying to bully him into giving false testimony against the president. And looking back on this day in the year 2000 and a pair of legal setbacks for Al Gore, a Florida state judge refuses to overturn George W. Bush's certified victory in Florida and the U.S. Supreme Court set aside a ruling that allows manual recounts. And on this day in 1978, San Francisco gets its first female mayor as city supervisor, Diane Feinstein. 
She's named to replace George Mescone, who was assassinated. And on this day in 1783, General George Washington bids farewell to his Continental Army officers uh, at a tavern in New York. So just looking back uh, at what happened on this day historically. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to wind our way through the news. And a reminder that uh, coming up in the second half of this hour, we'll talk with uh, Mary Letterleitner. She's the author of Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. We're going to talk about some of the impediments that women face and uh, hear about some women who are doing significant work on the mission field. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. One of the most touching moments in tributes paid to former President George uh, Herbert Walker Bush was seeing Bob Dole, who was aided as he stood from his wheelchair and gave the salute to his uh, former president and former um, opponent uh, politically rising from that chair in a very dramatic moment. The former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole, who is in his mid-90s, and it's it's amazing to see this man that I witnessed as a younger man in his full strength, um, to see him withered as he is now, um, making the effort to come and pay his respects was really quite uh, quite touching. Uh, he was helped out of his wheelchair this afternoon to salute the American flag-draped casket of former President George Herbert Walker Bush, he too having served in the military. Dole is 95. He arrived at the Capitol Rotunda where uh, the former president lies in state until tomorrow morning. He pushed um, he was pushed rather in his wheelchair by an aide. Once at the casket side, the aide helped him stand. And as he was uh, steadied, he raised his arm and saluted a longtime senator and congressman from Kansas. Dole was uh, then helped back into his wheelchair where he sat for several moments in front of the casket of his former colleague and former opponent. Like Bush, Dole is also a World War II veteran. He was the Republican presidential nominee in 1996 for you younger people. And he suffered extensive injuries to his arm in that war. In 1996, New York Times article detailed his injuries um, as so severe he could not use his right arm or hand Uh, And his left hand was partially numb as well. Well, the Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas set up a special memorial to honor uh, former President Bush's legacy and his relationship with Dole. A guest book will eventually be sent to the Bush family, according to the Institute. Bush's service dog, Sully, visited the casket in the Capitol earlier today. uh, Yes, earlier today. And the president will be honored with a funeral service at the Washington National Cathedral before his body is flown back to Texas for burial. He died on the 30th of November at age 94. Well, the National Republican Congressional Committee said Tuesday that it suffered a major hacking attack during the 2018 election. Now, many are wondering, why are we only now hearing about it? The NRCC, we're told, can confirm that it was the victim of a cyber intrusion by an unknown entity. That's according to a spokesperson, Ian Pryor. Um, The cybersecurity of this committee's data is paramount. And upon learning of the intrusion, the NRCC immediately launched an internal investigation and notified the FBI, which is now investigating the matter. Pryor went on to say to protect the integrity of that investigation, the NRCC will offer no further comment on the incident. Well, the National Republican 
um, congressional committee is the committee dedicated to electing House Republicans across the country. The GOP ended up losing 40 seats in the November election, as well as its majority. Politico first reported on the uh, uh, the cyber intrusion during the midterms. The outlet cited sources as saying the emails of four senior aides were surveilled for months. Political reported that GOP officials believe the attack was from a foreign agent. Political reported that the Republican leadership, including House Speaker Paul Ryan, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Majority Whip Steve Scalise, had not been informed of the attack until the outlet began reporting its story. According to the outlet, the hacking was first discovered by a managed security service provider that monitors the committee's network. It comes after the high profile hack at Democratic campaign committees and other prominent Democrats aligned with Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential election. And unlike in those instances, Republicans told Politico they, they don't believe any of the information hacked from GOP emails was made public. Well, prior to the elections, the president, uh, then candidate Trump, expressed concern over the possibility of Russia interfering in this midterm cycle. Special counsel Robert Mueller is prosecuting Russian operatives for targeting the Clinton campaign and DNC during the 2016 election in an effort to help Donald Trump. I'm very concerned that Russia will be fighting very hard to have an impact on the upcoming election, Trump tweeted in July. And apparently that effort was made if, in fact, this foreign entity believed to have hacked the NRCC's um, computer system was Russian. Well, it's been nearly a month since North Carolina voters cast their ballot for the ninth uh, congressional district. But officials are still holding off on certifying for certifying rather the winner. Uh, with an investigation of possible voter fraud pertaining to absentee ballots. Well, North Carolina's Elections Board unanimously decided to delay finalizing the results of the close, the close U.S. House race in a meeting today. Friday's board meeting agenda didn't include any plans for certification, according to The Washington Post. Republican Mark Harris leads Democrat Dan McCready by 905 votes out of nearly 283,000 cast in the district. The GOP has held that district since 1963. Democratic Party attorney John Wallace has alleged public records confirm that serious irregularities and improprieties may have occurred, pointing to Bladen County, which had the highest percentage of absentee ballots requests in the whole state, the Charlotte Observer reported. Wallace gave the Elections Board notarized affidavits from several voters who claimed ballots were improperly collected without being signed or appropriately sealed. One woman said she uh, uh, turned over a partially completed ballot and the person collecting it said she would finish it herself. Now, why on earth you would hand your ballot over under that circumstance is a puzzle to me. But another woman said she voted early in person, but still received an uh, absentee ballot in the mail, despite not requesting one. Well, the board's vice chairman was the person who requested a delay in the certification of the election. Uh, His motion cited a state law that reads the board can take any uh, other action necessary to assure that an election is determined without taint or fraud or corruption and without irregularities that may have changed the result of the election. He said he was uh, concerned about unfortunate activities that have been happening down in his part of the state and that uh, he's not going to turn a blind eye to what took place uh, to the best of his understanding. Well, uh, Democrats have since uh, made the announcement that they may, in fact, refuse to seat uh, the at least purportedly duly elected Republican uh, in that race until this issue is resolved. So we'll see what happens uh, there and how long it might take 
for them to uh, make some sort of resolution. Meanwhile, the fallout over Florida's turbulent recount is escalating after the state's outgoing Republican governor decided to oust a South Florida elections official after she officially resigned. Governor Rick Scott late Friday suspended embattled Broward County Supervisor of Elections Brenda Snipes, even though Snipes had already agreed to step down from her post in early January. Scott uh, replaced Snipes with his former general counsel, even though Peter um, Antucaccini uh, has no elections experience. Well, Snipes responded by uh, rescinding her previous resignation and will now be fighting this to the very end. Her attorney said during a Saturday news conference. Now, you might remember uh, Snipes uh, was criticized for her mishandling of the election and uh, not just this election, but previous elections as well. She announced that she was going to resign sometime earlier in two years, which isn't exactly a resignation. Then uh, after much haggling over the outcome, uh, she announced that she would resign at the end of January. Well, that apparently is off the table. We believe these actions are malicious, says Bernadette Norris Weeks, who said the Broward County voters should be concerned about what Scott is trying to do in the Democratic stronghold by putting in an ally who could oversee the office into the 2020 elections. Well, Snipes has been the top elections official in the South Florida County since 2003, when then-Governor Jeb Bush appointed her. She came under a withering criticism for her handling of this year's elections, as well as its legally uh, required recount in close races for governor and U.S. Senate. She'd been elected three times, and his uh, current term uh, was not scheduled to end until 2020. In his executive order, Governor Scott said that he was suspending Snipes due to... uh, Uh, malfeasance, uh, incompetence, and neglect of duty. His order cited problems during the recount, including reports of more than 2,000 ballots being misplaced. She also came under fire in 2017 after she destroyed years-old ballots in violation of law. Um, Shortly after the recount started, Scott himself suggested possible fraud but never offered any concrete examples. After a series of inexcusable actions, it's clear that there needs to be an immediate change in Broward County and taxpayers should no longer be burdened by paying a salary for a supervisor of elections who has already announced resignation, he went on to say. Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Bob Corker said the CIA left little doubt that Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was in fact complicit in the murder of activist and writer Jamal Khashoggi. Well, CIA Director Gina Haspel briefed two Senate committees on Capitol Hill today on the CIA's findings about the murder of the uh, journalist who lived in the United States. There's not a smoking gun. There's a smoking saw, said Graham, making a reference to how the body was dismembered, adding that anyone who would deny Ben Salman's involvement at this point is willfully blind. Well, last week, Defense Secretary James Mattis said we have no smoking gun that the crown prince was involved. In other words, no direct evidence. He and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo briefed lawmakers on the murder last week, but Haspel was notably absent. Graham said it appears Ben Salman was intricately involved and commanded the team that killed and dismembered Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, in October. He once again called Ben Salman crazy and questioned whether the U.S. was uh, can partner with Saudi Arabia if he is in charge. Well, Corker agreed, saying there is a zero question in his mind that MBS, uh, the crown prince, planned the murder and kept tabs on the events as they were unfolding. Uh, if he was not, if he was in front of a jury, he would be convicted in 30 minutes. Responding on outnumbered overtime, Representative Jerry Connolly, a Democrat, said sanctions must be passed by Congress against Saudi Arabia 
and the uh, crown prince. He should not be invited to global events like last week's G20 in Argentina, which was rather awkward, by the way. He was somewhat isolated and lectured by many of the uh, participants. That was a disgusting scene, Connolly went on to say. Well, President Trump took criticism last month after releasing a statement that said maybe he did and maybe he didn't in reference to whether uh, the crown prince had, in fact, uh, had foreknowledge of the murder. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Mary Letterleitner. She is the author of Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. We're going to focus on some of the challenges that uh, that presents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 38 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, women have advanced God's mission throughout history and all around the world, but women often face particular obstacles in ministry. What do we need to know about how uh, to make women, uh, not make them, but how to create an environment in which women can thrive in ministry and in mission? Well, my next guest has written a book on that very subject, Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. Uh, my guest is um, uh, Mary T. Le- uh, Letterleiter. She is a founder and executive director of uh, Missional Intelligence. She has a Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and an M.A. in Intercultural Studies from Wheaton College and teaches as an adjunct professor at both institutions. She is a veteran missions leader and researcher who has uh, served for two decades with the Wycliffe uh, Global Alliance and a variety of international leadership roles. She serves on the OM Global Board and has a board member uh, has been a board member for Catalyst Services. She is also the author of Cross Cultural Partnerships and joins us today to talk about women in God's mission, accepting the invitation to serve and lead. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Georgina. I really appreciate uh, having the chance to talk with you. Well, let's begin with with your story. It may be surprising to some of our listeners that uh, there are women uh, in God's mission who are successfully leading while others are shrugging their shoulders as if, why, you know, why are we even discussing this is such uh, a um, an accepted things thing today. Uh, But I think it's important for us to recognize some of the challenges that women face. Let's begin with a bit of your story. Well, um, I started working in missions about 20 years ago, and over the years working with Wycliffe Bible Translators, I've been able to travel to a lot of different countries around the world. And what we find is the situation for women is very different um, in many nations and also even in our own nation um, when they're working in ministry contexts. God gives us um, a lot of freedom in determining um, our policies and processes and and how people work. And so uh, depending on what uh, those kind of processes are or what people have determined women are allowed or not allowed to do, it gets very complex um, for a lot of women around the world. Sometimes the the situation at work varies uh, significantly from their situation when they volunteer at their church, and then sometimes the situation at home is different still. So um, it's fascinating and it's challenging, but women are navigating a lot of um, challenges quite well and making an amazing contribution in the world. 
For the book, uh, Women in God's Mission, as a mission researcher, you interviewed and surveyed 95 respected women in mission leadership from 30 countries to gather their insights, their expertise, and best practices. Um, how, how did you find these women, and what did you find that was common among them? Well, um, I first started with some women I knew who were deeply respected, and I would ask them uh, to recommend other women that they knew working in different types of um, ministries and organizations. I also talked to a lot of men in different countries who were deeply respected, and I would ask them for recommendations. So everybody in the research was recommended because people enjoyed working with the woman. They respected her as a leader. So um, so that was one of the, the first ways. And I'm in a lot of different ministry networks. And so I was able to just meet these incredible women. I mean, they were doing everything from working with um, at-risk kids to um, working in medical missions in some of the most difficult parts of the world to working in advocacy, human uh, ending human trafficking or advancing literacy or Bible translation. They were in church planting. They they were just in a really wide array of different types of um, professional occupations. Some were working as, as Christians in maybe uh, just a regular university, but they were wanting to be a voice there. So, um, so it was really... It was extremely fascinating and uh, just a, just a privilege and a pleasure mm-hmm. to meet them. Well, and a pleasure to read their stories in your book as well. You write that because of the controversies about what women can and cannot do in ministry, I've always tried to avoid the topic of whenever possible. My professional strategy has been to keep my head down, work extremely hard, and draw as little attention to my gender as humanly possible. And there was some fear about um, a possible backlash by raising the issue with some of the women that you spoke with and perhaps some of your readers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that may be foreign to some, maybe of our our, uh, male listeners, maybe not so much to women listening. Right. I think that, um, I think that sometimes like even when I interviewed uh, different women, sometimes they would talk about trying to um, speak up for uh, having more opportunities in a certain setting. And sometimes just by uh, speaking up, uh, the space for them shrunk. So, so we have a situation that's a really di- difficult one, and, and you see it really across professions a lot of times uh, in North America and in many parts of the world. It's, it's challenging. There's uh, a discrepancy in pay. There's a discrepancy in a lot of different areas. And um, sometimes if women speak up about them, uh, the situation becomes more difficult. Uh, in, in certain countries in the world, if women speak up, uh, they'll be physically abused for speaking up. So, so, you know, you just, you have this situation and it's challenging. I think it's fortunate uh, for women who are in work situations where there's uh, total equality and their gender never really plays into it and it's just their competencies and, and what they bring. Uh, that's that's a great situation, but it's not um, it's not a universal 
situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for many women. Well, I found that learning how women are serving in missions in various places around the world helped me know how to pray more effectively about women in ministry and to appreciate uh, some of the opportunities that we have here and appreciate some of the unique challenges we have here as well. One of the things that you unveil in the book is how women serve in distinctive ways uh, and that there are key traits of um, faithful, connected leaders uh, that you could trace through their leadership and that might help others in uh, working with women to recognize as well. Talk a little bit about the uniqueness of women in ministry, because we might just assume that everybody does it the same. It doesn't, your gender doesn't really make much of a difference, but we are different in some significant ways. And I think women benefit ministry because of some of their distinctives. Right. They really do. I think what really shocked me in this research is I've studied global leadership for years. And I've always been taught and I've always seen around the world that people lead differently uh, based on what country they're from and the culture that formed them. Um, What was fascinating with this research was how similarly these women were leading (laughs) from many different countries and cultures. It went totally against what I had learned and expected. And then as I stepped back and I looked at it, I realized that I had seen that over the years, but I'd never recognized it. So for instance, um, a lot of women are socialized that they shouldn't look too ambitious. They shouldn't reach for higher positions. Um, And so Deborah uh, Tannen, a famous uh, linguist, has talked about that being the double bind, that if women um, are assertive and uh, more aggressive, a lot of times guys will respect or will uh, think that they're a good leader, but they won't really like them. But if women act more feminine, they're often liked but not viewed as being as competent of a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was interesting with these women is they had navigated that double bind. They were both greatly liked and they were viewed as being extremely competent. So, so one of the things was just um, the first trait. Uh, it's not about me. It's about God and his mission. And, and they were just so focused on that. And I found it so intriguing because it was the exact opposite of the strong man leadership model that, that seems so prevalent right now. So um, they really uh, felt like it was about God. It was about his mission. It was about his honor. It was about his power. And uh, at first I was a little skeptical thinking, is that really true? Or are they just saying that? But then the next trait that they exhibited showed that it was true. They were really focused on prayer. And that was a hugely important part of their life. Uh, They wanted... um, to pray because they felt like the relationship with God, with God was more important than their work. They prayed for discernment because they wanted the work to be done the way that they felt like God wanted it done. They prayed so that they wouldn't hinder the work, that their own personal weaknesses wouldn't get in the way. Um, and they prayed because they felt like ultimately the challenges were so big and so significant that really, um, if God didn't work, not much would happen. Mm. And so, so those are just a couple of the traits. There are actually seven traits in this leadership model that I called the faithful connected leader. 
And it encouraged me because so many leadership books are written by men and women try to find their place in those books. And I've appreciated a lot of those books. But it's nice to be able to bring the voice of gifted women to the leadership conversation. And I think a lot of guys are going to say, wow, that's pretty inspiring. I would like to be that kind of a leader. Yeah. In fact, that's the very thing I was just about to say. I would absolutely agree that there's something not just for women, but for men who work alongside women and want to help nurture women into leadership positions that can be learned as well. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking about the book Women in God's Mission. My guest is Mary Leader Leitner. She's the author, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 54 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with uh, Dr. Mary Letterleitner. And I have to apologize right now because I think I have pronounced your name every conceivable way in the few times I've said it. Uh, so I apologize for that. But... No worries at all. Yeah. <laughs> but she is the author, whoever she is, <laughs> however the name is pronounced. She's the author of Women in God's Mission. It's a great book to help us better understand how we can work together to to accomplish God's purposes. The subtitle is Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. One of the things that you do is shed light on dynamics that inhibit women and also give testimony to God's grace and his empowerment in the midst of those challenges. What are some of the things that inhibit some of the dynamics that inhibit women and their ability to effectively serve God when they are called to do so? Well, um, one of the things that was really fascinating when I interviewed the women is that if they were married, it seemed like they were married to the same guy. (laughs) I kept thinking, this is so strange. (laughs) I I know some of these guys, and they don't seem alike. They don't seem similar to me at all. But, But the types of ways that they were relating to their wives were very similar And it reminded me of the passage in Ephesians about how marriage is supposed to model the relationship of Christ uh, with the church. And um, with these women, um, what what came out was that their husbands often were um, very supportive of them. They were encouraging them. They weren't threatened by them. Um, They really were proud of them and and they really um, just sort of, I don't know, were just really uh, beaming with joy when um, they accomplished things. And I found that very interesting because I, I started thinking about parallels with Jesus. Um, women can sometimes be hindered by a spouse who's focused just on his own comfort. But um, Jesus, was he focused on his own comfort? He, he isn't with the, the bride of Christ. Is Jesus threatened by the bride of Christ, the church? I don't believe he is at all. Um, does Jesus want his bride, the church, to grow to her full potential? I believe he does. Um, does he delight in his bride's accomplishments? I think he really does. So, um, so that situation um, was really significant in the research. And women that are married to someone who who doesn't respond the way Jesus does, they can still lead, but it's going to be so much more difficult for them. So I think a lot of times it starts in the home um, if they're married. If they're single, they have a lot more freedom. Um, also, there are things... Um, 
just in terms of men opening doors for women or closing doors. Uh, a lot of times, I think if we just assume that we know what women need, we inadvertently begin hindering them. Uh, each each woman's kind of different. Her situation is different. And so I really encourage people to really talk to the, the women in your workplace or the women, women in your ministry and, and just ask, what do they need to flourish? Um, you know, they might have health needs. They might need more flexibility because of family situations, um, that sort of thing. I think, um, I think the other piece that's really um, necessary is having the right type of um, metaphor for the workplace. And, and this gets it's more noticeable in, um, in a ministry workplace. Um, the idea of what is the underlying metaphor about women? Are women uh, temptresses <laughs> who cause men to stumble? Or are we sacred siblings on the journey? Mm. Um, a lot of times we never talk about the, uh, the uh, metaphor that's at the bottom of all of our processes. But it's kind of implicit and it's speaking all of the time. And so being able to bring that out in the open and really talk about it. Um, Another piece that's interesting, and it's probably more a case in ministry settings, but it, it can happen in regular work environments too, is, is the equitable job titles and having a job description that accurately uh, conveys what a woman mm-hmm. is doing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times someone's just called a, a pastor's wife, but really she's doing everything an executive pastor would do in another church or or um, sometimes if a guy has a position, it will have a, a fancier title. Uh, but if the woman has it, she'll be called a coordinator. You know, things like that can make a big difference in terms of just having consistency. Um, I sometimes wonder if every woman had a job description that actually captured everything she did. If the whole issue would kind of disappear. <laughs> because a lot of times... Women just do a lot of things and, and they don't get credit for yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. And yeah. You're so, absolutely so right. Just, oh, go ahead. Oh, those are just some of uh, some initial things that come to mind. I was going to say, you're absolutely right. We don't often talk about those things. What I'm uh, happy to say is you do talk about them in the book and you hear from, or we have the opportunity to hear from other women who are facing these realities and these challenges uh, in the field and can provide for us great insight and direction for moving forward. Once again, the the book is titled Women in God's Mission, and there are many of us accepting the invitation to serve and lead. My guest is Dr. Mary, and I'm going to invite you to say your name at least once during the course of this program correctly. It's it's letter lightener, but truly, uh, don't worry, it's a very complicated <laughs> name. <laughs> well, Dr. No letter lightener, I so appreciate the book, and I appreciate your taking time to be with us here today. <laughs> oh, sure thing. Thanks so much for having me. Thank I really you. appreciate it. <laughs> Bye-bye. Again, the book Bye. is published by InterVarsity Press, and you can find it uh, in, um, in bookstores. A great uh, opportunity to think about mission as a woman. And as we anticipate Mission Connection coming up the 18th and 19th of January, we've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Aaron Anderson is engineering. Glad to have you with us in this second uh, half of the program. We're going to wind our way through some of the news stories. And I'm telling you, it's been kind of tough to keep up with them all. Things are developing and breaking uh, even as I speak, but we'll try to at least cover some of the stuff. We learned today that um, the Dow sunk 799 points on bond and trade fears. Uh, Tim Hockey, who's a CEO of TD Ameritrade, um, uh, commented that U.S. stocks plunged today with a selling accelerating into the closing bell as investors reacted to falling bond yields. And that uh, rose fears of, of recession and ongoing skepticism about the U.S.-China trade truce. Uh, the, the broader market averages lost over 3% apiece with the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing just shy of 800-point drop. Total trading volume, which includes all the major U.S. exchanges, averaging near 8.9 billion shares changing hands above the average 6.9 billion and financial stocks were the worst performing group in the S&P 500 led by the uh, by shares of JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, regional banks um uh, also uh, fell in concert with the larger banks as well and again this is all tethered to the US China trade truce and the president earlier today said something I yeah Mr Tra- Mr uh, tariff um, which many were scratching their head and puzzling, what does that mean exactly? And I think what he was trying to say is, if China is unwilling to make the changes that I'm calling for, I'm I'm perfectly prepared to impose tariffs. But it was a little bit difficult to know precisely what he meant. And that may at least in some uh, sense be responsible for the volatile market earlier today. Uh, meanwhile, um, there's concern that the growing federal debt is posing a number of time uh, is posing a number of problems. Rather, um, it was usually posed as a hypothetical problem in the distant future. Well, it's now about to become a real problem in the present, and Americans are going to discover a very tough lesson. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Jeffrey Goldblum. Um, in the horror movie, The Fly said, "Be afraid, be very afraid," because as in the horror movie. Um, the monster's uh, debt could just gobble up our entire federal budget or enough of it that it feels like uh, it's the entire budget. Let me back up a bit. A recent Wall Street Journal report gave the uh, gory details just last year, paying the interest on our $20 trillion uh, in debt took just $263 billion. That's equal to 6.6% of all federal spending or about 1.4% of GDP. That's how, largely because half of our debt is issued while the Fed uh, held interest rates at zero percent. That's no longer the case, however, and those interest rates will continue to rise, although uh, perhaps not as quickly as many feared. Well, with the Fed now tightening its cycle, every one percent gain in interest rates adds two hundred billion dollars to our annual interest on the debt. With a budget deficit of seven hundred and seventy-nine billion this year, and more like it. Um, Expected in the future, not only will the debt be growing, but the interest payments on it will grow as well. And uh, by 2028, the Congressional Budget Office projects the interest will rise to $915 billion. Now, that's just the interest. That's 13% of the budget, 3.1% of GDP, and it only keeps rising from there. The federal government claims we just... um, uh, 
We're just over $15 trillion in debt, or roughly 78% of our GDP. But the reality is we owe nearly $21 trillion, which is all of our GDP. The government doesn't count uh, what we owe ourselves, namely debt run-up. Uh, to pay off entitlements. But those are debts just as anything else is. And as um, has been noted before, um, a debt of 90% or higher of GDP is a dangerous thing. It reduces private investment since it requires enormous amounts of money every year to pay off. And as a result, it causes economic growth to slow dramatically. Well, I won't go into it uh, much more, but the economics of trade and certainly our deficit are things to consider. Well, Justice Brett Kavanaugh had uh, never heard a death penalty case in his 12 years as an appeals judge. But when confronted with the issue in just the third week of his new job, he wasted little time expressing a measure of concern for the capital um, inmate facing lethal injection. Are you saying even if the method creates gruesome and brutal pain, you can still do it because there's no alternative? He asked in an oral argument earlier this month on Missouri's protocols. Well, in a sharp tone, he pressed for a clear, direct answer to the state's, uh, rather from the state's attorney general, who replied, yes, so long as the state did not attempt to deliberately inflict pain for the sake of pain. Is there any limit on that? Asked the justice, sounding skeptical. The court is just, um, is rather yet to issue an opinion on any case that Kavanaugh has participated in. The 114th member of the high court uh, may yet turn out to be the reliable conservative President Trump has hoped when nominating Kavanaugh following the retirement of his mentor, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Although we've seen in other cases that justices don't always follow the path that is expected of them. Until then, he remains something of an ideological question mark, particularly on issues where his previous record is scant. I think there are many issues where he has the potential to be a swing vote. That's a quote from Thomas Dupree. He's a former top Bush Justice Department official. He went on to say, I think you look at the death penalty, abortion, immigration, administrative law questions. These are all disputes that have split the court along partisan lines. Now there is a new justice, and I think everyone is going to uh, be angling for his vote. Well, there's no big news there. Well, outcomes in five big cases now or soon to be tackled by the Supreme Court will test Kavanaugh's conservative credentials, and he could prove the deciding vote, much like the man he replaced. Well, after the one-hour public session dealing with capital punishment, Kavanaugh's vote is likely to be the crucial tiebreaker on a closely divided 5-4 conservative majority. The high court in March without Kavanaugh stayed Russell Rusty Bucklew's execution at the last moment when Kennedy at the time, typically providing the swing vote or deciding the outcome, was still on the bench. The inmate claims lethal injection would uh, rupture tumors in his neck and cause him to choke on his own blood. At issue is whether a condemned prisoner has the burden to show another execution method that would reduce the risk of needless suffering. The prosecutors say Bucklaw was was uh, jealous over the end of a relationship and went on a violent spree in 1996 that included murdering a man, shooting a child, or at least shooting at a child, kidnapping and um, molesting a woman, attacking the woman's mother with a hammer and wounding a police officer. Now, for the casual observer, the suffering of the inmate uh, who has been given the death penalty is probably of less significance, but it is the role of the Supreme Court to determine whether or not cruel and unusual punishment is being inflicted. That's one of the cases that Kavanaugh will be weighing in on. Also, the um, 
in, uh, immigration uh, issue. There's great consternation there. The president is on a legal losing streak. Almost every lower state and federal court has struck various aspects of his immigration policies. The original travel ban on entry of those from several mostly Muslim countries. Immigration enforcement on so-called sanctuary cities. Plans to move ahead on the border wall amid environmental concerns. Administration efforts to um, gut TPS, the Temporary Protected Status Program, allowing for 300,000 refugees to legally work in the U.S. while their uh, home countries remain in turmoil. A zero-tolerance enforcement policy leading to more than 2,500 families' separation uh, during uh, earlier this year. And just this week, a federal judge temporarily blocking the administration from refusing asylum to immigrants crossing the border illegally. That was a response to migrant caravans massing around the 26 official border crossings with Mexico. Well, the Supreme Court alone has provided limited legal victories for the administration, including allowing the travel ban policy to proceed in a 5-4 decision in June. The other issues are um, percolating up the justices and uh, could be addressed in uh, in the coming weeks and months. Again, Kavanaugh's appeal court uh, record is scant on immigration, but critics say in the handful of cases he considered the uh, immigrant lost. Then there's the DACA question. There are uh, efforts by the president to eliminate DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program championed by President Obama. It's given about 700,000 undocumented immigrants, many called dreamers, uh, brought illegally to the United States uh, to be allowed to live here and get an education and work permits. Well, the Justice Department has appealed to... Recent rulings by three federal courts to keep DACA in place, at least temporarily, while the issues move through the judicial food chain. He will uh, be weighing in on that. And then the question of who's in charge. Well, speaking of the attorney general, the Supreme Court is already being asked to weigh in on the man chosen to take over temporarily for the departed Jeff Sessions. Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker, who was Sessions' chief of staff, has never been confirmed by the Senate for a principal Justice Department post. And that, say critics, makes his appointment unconstitutional. The Supreme Court will very likely weigh in on that, maybe even in an expedited uh, manner. And Justice uh, Kavanaugh will certainly play a significant role there. And then immigration uh, at the forefront of an executive spat over the 2020 census and plans by the administration to include a question on citizenship. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear arguments in February over whether Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross acted legally when adding the question to a once a decade headcount. At issue for the justices will be what kind of evidence can be considered in an ongoing lawsuit, including the deposition of top Justice Department official Kavanaugh and his uh, colleagues had earlier denied a request by a dozen states and cities plus civil rights groups to depose Ross himself for the district court trial that ended last week. The justices had separately allowed that trial to proceed and they'll be weighing in ultimately on the census and what question can be asked. And then at a busy intersection in the Maryland suburbs just outside Washington stands the Peace Cross. It's a memorial to World War I veterans. The 100th anniversary of that conflict was commemorated uh, earlier this month. And I'm referring to the war, not the conflict over the cross. Lower courts rule that the 40-foot-tall cross in a highway median has the primary effect of endorsing religion and excessively entangles the government in it. 
Well, the state governor and other officials say the monument context and history show it uh, was intended and is intended to convey a, a secular message or remembrance, not a religious message. Well, now the Supreme Court will have the final say with oral arguments early next year. It's going to be a, a, the first hot button social issue to be addressed by the justices this term and by its newest members. And at the Supreme Court, every vote by the justices count the same. And although Uh, Who writes the all-important opinions where precedent is established often falls to more senior members. The new guy uh, may have to wait years to have a judicial imprint on society and the law. For years, Justice Kennedy held that role, authoring landmark rulings on same-sex marriage, abortion, school prayer. Kavanaugh seems poised to play for the long term for now keeping a low-key personal and professional profile. And who knows what will happen uh, after the uh, the start of the new year with the new uh, House whether or not and, and um, objections to his um, his confirmation, he's not just going to try to establish a reputation right out of the gate uh, as a bomb thrower. Some observers are, are pointing out when people look back on Kavanaugh's first year on the bench, they're going to say this is the right justice at the right time. He will not uh, most likely distinguish himself uh, as a maverick, but time will only tell what kind of a justice he will be. But these are some of the questions that will um will come up in the short term. George Orwell wrote the book, um, 1984, in which he has the quote, Big Brother is watching you. Now, those of us who are old enough remember that. Privacy is dead. Its death is best described as homicide committed by tech titans whose power and wealth are unprecedented and millions of American accomplices whose insatiable quest to be noticed and validated, epitomized by the now ubiquitous like button, has overcome any sense of foreboding. We'll talk about uh, 1984 on steroids in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 24 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in George Orwell's novel, three main components enable the party's totalitarian control, surveillance, enforcement, and coercion. In 2018, the level of surveillance, exactly the right word for the terabytes of personal data acquired by Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, I could go on, makes Orwell's big brother look benign by comparison. Arnold Allert writes this, that Google, noticing that people would leave the search engine to roam the Internet, came up with a browser, Chrome explains columnist Kyle Smith. Now everything you do online through Chrome is logged by Google, but Google wants to know what you're doing even when you're not online, hence Android. As soon as you log on, Android uploads a complete picture of everywhere your phone has been that day, everywhere, whether you like it or not. And they're not done, not by a long shot. Patents recently issued to Google provide a window into their development activities. Columnist Philip Baker writes, While it's no guarantee of a future product, it is a sure indication of what's of interest to them. What we've given up in privacy to Google, Facebook and others thus far is minuscule compared to what is coming if these companies get their way, end quote. Columnist Sidney Fussell describes those patents in bone chilling details, and I quote, In the first patent, Google imagines devices that would scan and analyze the surroundings of your home, then offer you content based on what you what they detect. According to the patent, the smart cameras in such a device could, for example, recognize Will Smith's face on a T-shirt on the floors of a user's closet. After matching this uh, analysis against your browser history, the device might then say aloud, you seem to like Will Smith. His new movie is playing in a theater near you. 
patent number two. The second patent proposes a smart home system that would help run the household using sensors and cameras to restrict kids' behavior. He explains parents could provide a device to note if it's uh, if it overhears foul language uh, from children, scan Internet usage or for mature or objectionable content or use um, uh, occupancy sensors to determine if certain areas of the house are accessed while they're gone. For example, the liquor cabinet. The system could be set to change a smart lighting system color to red and flash the lights as a warning to children or uh, even power off lights and devices if they're grounded. Sadly, it's likely many parents, especially of the helicopter variety, would embrace such appalling intrusiveness. Yet what happens to children who grow up in an environment where the evisceration of privacy and trust is normalized? Well, the increasing infantilization of younger Americans seeking the refuge of safe spaces and trigger warnings is impossible to ignore. Yet what should frighten decent Americans the most is their increased infatuation with suppressing hate speech because the nation's tech titans are on board with accommodating their that suppression every step of the way. Earlier this week, Twitter permanently banned writer Megan Murphy from its platform because she opined that women cannot be men and committed the sin known as dead naming, as in referring to a trans person by his or her legal or birth name. Well, this team and others are contained in the Gender Nation Glossary, an effort engendered by the Rainbow Mafia to define the parameters of acceptable speech reminiscent of, yeah, 1984's Newspeak, which brings us to enforcement. A definition of totalitarianism might be the saturation of every facet of daily life by political agendas and social justice messaging. Victor Davis Hansen explains envisioning a future America warped by an all-encompassing ideology of coerced sameness. It is a coerced sameness best exposed by Smith, who typed top races a Republican into his Google search engine and the word races got a squiggly underline suggesting he had misspelled the word. He writes beneath it ran Google's helpful correction, top racist Republicans. What did top races Democrats engender before he completed spelling the word Democrat? He reveals that two lines below ran the following little hint, best Democratic races to donate to. But it's the Russians trying to manipulate American elections, right? Well, between them, Google and Facebook are effectively a duopoly with unprecedented influence over American lives and minds, Smith goes on to point out. The federal government is, meanwhile, a heavy user of Google products and has shown little interest in oversight. We've only begun to take notice of the way the state is merging with the most powerful corporations. It is a merger that will firmly establish the coercion part of the totalitarian equation. Communist China offers great insight into how it will be realized. China's plan to judge each of its 1.3 billion people based on their social behavior is moving a step closer to reality, with Beijing set to adopt a lifelong points program by 2021 that assigns personalized ratings for each resident. Bloomberg News reports the capital city city rather will pool data from several departments or to reward and punish some 22 million citizens based on their actions and reputations by the end of 2020. Well, Victor Davis Hansen warns uh, when you get up in the morning until you go to bed at night, you are on stage and a progressive um, uh, viewing of everywhere around you is going on. America is now a nation where the message is all the same. The old creaking um, 
brontosauruses are heading for the tar pits and being replaced by far cooler, better and smarter youthful raptors. Even as the society grows even more callous, indebted, fractional and dysfunctional from the now normal tarmac nightmares to going into the DMV, he adds, it's hard to find a TV sitcom, a song or a billboard that is not in your face about something in your face. On Tuesday, Yahoo News reported that researchers working for European Space Agency, ESA, and MIT teamed up with sanitation specialists and created a toilet called the Fitloo. It is equipped with sensors capable of examining human waste for disease and beaming that information to a user's phone or directly to his or her general practitioner. In short, the states of one's feces could be part of one's personal database. And if the Fitloo is installed in public restrooms, well, yesterday the Wall Street Journal revealed Amazon will mine patient medical records, stating the move is the latest by a big technology company into healthcare, an industry where it sees opportunities for growth. Will the nation fight back or mindlessly embrace the all-encompassing ambitions of our virtue signaling, data mining, Privacy-crushing would-be overlords. Ambitions best exemplified by a quote courtesy of Google CEO Eric Schmidt. Google policy on a lot of these things, Schmidt says, is to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. And, of course, they determine where the creepy line is. For some of us, they've already crossed it. Um, You will uh, be hollow. You shall squeeze. um, We shall squeeze you empty. And then we shall fill you with ourselves. Final quote from George Orwell's 1984. You will be hollow. We shall squeeze you empty and then we shall fill you with ourselves. But of course, this is American. That could never happen here. What a relief. That doesn't apply to us. Quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, there's a class of new synthetic drugs that have replaced heroin in many major American drug markets, and that's ushering in a more deadly phase of the opioid epidemic, even as the nation is attempting to focus attention on it and to, uh, to address it. The numbers are so staggering, we're being told. Overdose deaths set a new record last year. Well, new numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that drug overdoses killed more than 70,000 Americans last year. That's 2017. And that is a record. Overdose deaths are higher than deaths from HIV, from car crashes or gun violence at their peak. Now, the data also show that the increased death corresponds strongly with the use of synthetic opioids known as fentanyls. Now, since 2013, the number of overdose deaths associated with fentanyls and similar drugs has shown uh, has rather grown to more than 28,000 from 3000 deaths involving fentanyls. Uh, increased more than 45% in the year 2017 alone. So drug overdose deaths from 1980 to 2017 is covered by this report released last Thursday. If we're talking about counting the bodies, uh, where they lie, and the cause of death, we're talking about a fentanyl crisis. That's according to a senior public health scientist at the research group RTI International. The recent increases in drug overdose deaths have been so steep that they've contributed to reductions in the country's life expectancy over the last three years, a pattern unprecedented since World War II. Life expectancy at birth has fallen by nearly four months. The drug overdoses are the leading cause of death for adults under the age of 55. 
Now, these are entirely preventable. The idea that a developed, wealthy nation like ours has declining life expectancy just doesn't seem right. The chief of mortality statistics at the CDC, who helped prepare the report, says, going on to say that if you look at the other wealthy countries of the world, they're not seeing the same thing. Now, it says something about uh, the nature of um, life in America today and how we are managing uh, to live it. Uh, with the challenges we face. Well, in a separate report, the CDC also documented a 3.7% increase in the suicide rate, another continuation of a recent trend. The increases were particularly concentrated in rural America and among middle-aged women, uh, though the suicide rates for men remains higher than that for women at every age. Recent federal public policy responses to the opioid epidemic have focused on opioid prescription But several public health researchers say that the rise of fentanyl requires different tools. Opioid prescriptions have been falling even as the death rates from overdoses are rising. Fentanyl deaths are up a 45 percent increase. That's not success. Uh, Dr. Dan Sicarone, a professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, points out we have a heroin and a synthetic opioid epidemic that is out of control and needs to be addressed. Well, synthetic drugs tend to be more deadly than prescription drugs and heroin for two main reasons. They're usually more potent, meaning small errors in measurement can lead to an overdose. The blends of synthetic drugs also tend to change frequently, making it easy for drug users to underestimate the strength of the drug they're injecting. And in some parts of the country, drugs sold as heroin are exclusively fentanyls now. And you have no way of uh, determining what it is you're actually taking as opposed to what you think you're taking and in what Strength. The trends in overdose deaths vary widely across the country. The epidemic has been uh, strongest in the Northeast, Midwest, and Mid Atlantic states. In the West, where heroin is much less likely to be mixed with fentanyl, overdose rates are far lower, so that's at least good news for us here in the West. Data from the CDC indicate that a state's overdose trend closely tracks the number of fentanyl related deaths. And despite the sharp recent increases in drug related deaths, some earlier signs suggest that last year could be the peak of the overdose epidemic, and one can only hope and pray that that's the case. Preliminary CDC data show death rates leveling off nationally in the early months of this year, though there's still a lot of local variation. Several states and cities have embarked on ambitious public health programs to reduce the the deadliness of drug use and connect more drug users uh, with treatment. If you're looking for areas of ministry, if you're uh, find yourself just sitting when it's time for praying. I, I don't know what to pray about or what to pray for. There are things going on all around us that require our attention and, and uh, thought and prayer. These are just um, a couple of those examples. Uh, we also are learning that uh, the homeless crisis is getting worse in America's richest cities. Um, Noah Buhar writing for, um, oh, what's my reference here? I'll find it in a minute. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, it was just 10 p.m. on an overcast September night in Los Angeles, and L, not uh, identifying the individual, was tired of a long day of class prep, teaching, and grading papers. So the 57-year-old anthropology professor fed her chihuahua uh, a freeze-dried chicken strip, swapped her cigarette trousers for stretchy black yoga pants, and began to unfold a set of white sheets and a beige cotton blanket to make up her bed. Okay, there's nothing all that unusual there. But first, she had to recline the passenger seat of her 2015 Nissan Leaf as far as it would go 
that being her bed in the parking lot she'd called home for almost three months. The Late Show with Stephen Colbert was playing on her iPad as she drifted off for another night. Like sleeping on an airplane but not in first class, she said. Uh, that is, um, was part of uh, uh, her design. I don't want to get more comfortable. I want to get out of here. She's working. She's a professor. She's sleeping in her car. She has to go by her middle initial for fear of losing her job, couldn't afford her apartment earlier this year after failing to cobble together enough teaching assignments at two community colleges. By July, she'd exhausted her savings and turned to a local nonprofit, uh, which outfits a handful of, um, of lots around the city with security guards, porta potties, Wi-Fi, solar-powered electrical chargers. Sleeping in her car would allow her to uh, save for a deposit on an apartment someday. On that night in late September, under basketball hoops owned by an Episcopal church, uh, she was one of 16 people in 12 vehicles. Ten of them were females, two were children, and half were employed. The headline of the press release announcing the results of the country's latest homeless census strikes a note of progress. 2018 homeless count shows first decrease in four years. In some ways, that's true. The figure for people experiencing homelessness dropped 4%. That's a record number, got placed in housing and chronic and veteran homelessness, fell by double digits, but troubling figures lurk. The homeless population is still high at 52,765. That's up 47% from the year 2012. Now, those who'd become homeless for the first time jumped 16% from last year to about 9,300 people, and the country provided shelter for roughly 5,000 fewer people than in 2011. All this in a year when the economy in L.A., as in the rest of California and the U.S., is booming. That's part of the problem. Federal statistics show homelessness overall has been trending down over the past decade. As the United States climbed back from the Great Recession, the stock market reached all-time highs, today notwithstanding, and unemployment sank to a generational low. Yet in many cities, homelessness has spiked. It's most stark and visible out west, you know, where we live where shortages of shelter beds force people to sleep in their vehicles or on the street. In Seattle, the number of unsheltered homeless counted on a single night in January jumped 15% this year from 2017, a period when the value of Amazon.com, one of the the city's dominant employers, rose 68%. In California, home of Apple, Facebook, and Google, some 134,000 people were homeless during the annual census for the Department of Housing and Urban Development in January last year, a 14% jump from 2016. About two-thirds of them were unsheltered, the highest rate in the nation. At least 10 other cities on the West Coast have declared states of emergency in recent years. Uh, San Diego, Tacoma, Washington recently uh, responded by erecting tents fit for disaster relief areas to provide shelter for some. Seattle and Sacramento may be nest, and who knows about Portland. But again, the homeless crisis is getting worse in America's richest cities. I'm grateful for ministries like Union Gospel Mission, Transitional Youth that reach out to and minister to those living on the streets of the Portland metro area to provide them a way out uh, as they um, have an encounter, uh, build relationship, and then uh, move into a sheltered existence that takes them off the streets. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. 
Taking a look at tomorrow's program, we're looking forward to a conversation with Laura Adams. She's a safety analyst at driversed.com. She's going to offer some uh, expert tips and advice on how to stay safe on the road, especially when visibility is um, compromised and when there's hazard on the road. We're also going to speak with Gary Hemingway with the Gospel Christmas celebrating their 20th year. It's a great um, musical performance with the Oregon Symphony. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us here uh, on Wednesday. Wow, it's Wednesday already. I can hardly believe we're uh, almost there. Thursday, we'll talk with Os Guinness. His latest book, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, and he'll be our guest on Thursday. And then Friday, we're looking forward to looking away from some of the hard news, unless there are breaking news stories, at which point we will certainly break in with that information. But we're going to take some time to focus on the lighter side of the news. So looking forward to that. Well, George Herbert Walker Bush's service dog, Sully, isn't a Democrat or a Republican. It's just man's best friend. People from around the world are recalling President uh, Bush, Bush 41, his many accomplishments, outstanding qualities with words of praise. But one of the most beautiful and moving tributes was a wordless expression of love from his service dog, Sully. Unbelievably, a mean-spirited writer for Slate has chosen to attack the loyal dog seems to me we're just looking for anything to be critical of. Dogs aren't, uh, aren't called man's best friend for nothing. If you've ever owned a dog, we had one in my family for a couple of years. I still don't want to talk about it. You know, the uh, bond between this animal and we humans is very real. We mourn our dogs when they die. Okay, you mourn your dogs when they die. And yes, after sharing uh, homes and lives with them, they mourn uh, their keepers when they die. We feel genuine love for each other or something of the sort. Well, Slate staff writer Ruth Graham is clueless in recognizing this fact. And on Tuesday, Sully, a two-year-old golden Labrador, was brought to the Capitol Rotunda where President Bush's body lay in state to honor the 41st president. Sully wore an American flag vest with his name on it. It was a touching moment considering the relationship they had and how the dog was actually a helper to the former president. Well, on Sunday, Bush spokesperson Jim McGrath tweeted a photo of Sully lying in front of the former president's casket in Texas with a caption, Mission Complete. The photo went viral because it suggested the strong bond between animals and their humans. Well, Graham's slate piece went viral because she attacked the dog, the late president, and everyone else. Her piece criticized the nation for making too much of the photo of Sully lying on the floor Uh, in front of President Bush's casket. She wrote that dogs like to lie down, so there was no special significance to Sully doing uh, doing so near the casket. Apparently, she had interviewed the dog and was certain of it. Well, it was uh, something of a shame and perhaps even a little bit ridiculous, and attacking the dog for being a devoted dog is beyond ridiculous. Sully was a loyal companion and helper to President Bush, who used a wheelchair since 2012. The dog helped the former president open doors and retrieve small items and helped comfort Bush after the loss of his beloved wife, Barbara, earlier this year. Animals absolutely understand the death of those to whom they feel attached. Anyone with a pet can vouch for that fact. Did Sully recognize the scent of his late master and choose to stand guard by the casket, or was the dog, as Graham's, seems to think, oblivious to the passing of the former president? Well, the larger issue is what happens when you give millions of individuals the courage of the keyboard and they feel comfortable attacking anything they think has no value. Keeping one's thoughts to oneself is sometimes the best way to go. 
what slate going to come to uh, come out against next? Motherhood, apple pie. I wouldn't at all be surprised. Reverence for the American flag. Of course, they probably have already done that. Uh, never going to happen um, that, uh, you know, we're going to get an across the board compliment when one political icon passes away and others see an opportunity. But it would have been nice to just simply keep one's thoughts to oneself when it's so irrelevant to the overall uh, scheme of things. Uh, as we watched the arrival of President Bush's casket to the Capitol, felt uplifted by the military ceremony with which America honors its fallen leaders. And remember, George H.W. Bush was not only our nation's president, vice president, holder of other public offices. He was a courageous Navy pilot who nearly lost his life defending our country in World War II. He was a hero and a patriot in the truest sense. Now, there was um, there's no such. Um, well, there's not a need to write about the life of President Bush and the ceremonies honoring him following his death and including criticism of at least our understanding of the dog's presence. This should give any writer dozens of topics to choose from, but no, uh, Graham had no interest in any of those matters. Instead, she made her target a sweet and devoted dog, knowing that Sully could never write back, never speak up in his own defense. Well, she justified her sarcastic attack on the basis that Sully had only worked with the president for six months. So how connected, Graham wondered, could the president and the dog have become? If Sully had been assigned to President Bush for nine months, would Graham have remained silent? A year, two years, what would it have taken? Is there a minimum amount of time that would have caused her to give Sully, the president, the rest of us a pass? Well, she was clearly disturbed by random comments on Twitter to the effect that uh, she should never elect a president who does not love and is not loved by pets. Since when uh, uh, does the comment of a non-celebrity deserve the ire of a member of the chattering classes, one might ask? Or was Graham upset due to the fact that the person who issued that tweet uh, actually tweeted favorably a dozen times about President Bush's character and integrity? Well, it just highlights some of the challenges of our day in which... It's become quite fashionable to be critical of absolutely everything, Uh, whether or not it contributes to meaningful dialogue. It illuminates uh, any uh, truth that might uh, be helpful to us. It is a unifying uh, event. We just simply nitpick at everything um, to the detriment of what uh, we at least like to fondly refer to as our national unity. Now, I wonder if we've ever had it. I think we did have some shared values at one point, and I I've heard from several optimists who believe that will be restored at some point in our nation's future. I hope they're right, and my pessimism is not. Uh, But nonetheless, it is a bit discouraging to see the lengths to which we will go to make a point, to make a jab, to be critical, rather than just say, yeah, I may not have agreed with this person. The dog helped him out. We're trying to honor him and leave it at that. So I think I'll leave it at that. Once again, tomorrow, we're going to talk with Laura Adams. She is a safety analyst. We'll talk about uh, some safety tips on the road. We'll also talk with Gary Hemingway about Gospel Christmas. That's coming up very soon. They're celebrating their 20th year. And if you want to hear some great gospel music with great um, uh, with the orchestra and a great Christmas uh, tribute, this is a great event coming up. How many times can I use great in the course of one statement? Anyway, we'll tell you more about that when he joins me here tomorrow. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Aaron Anderson for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.